0: Oh, good morning. I don't know what it's been like for you, but it seems to me that over the last several weeks as we've been working our way through Luke chapter 12, that, man, week after week, section after section, the... Uh, the main thrust of what what Jesus is is speaking to his disciples, what he's saying to the the crowd that has gathered to hear him, and what he's saying to us, again and again, is that we've got to be ready to face eternity. That every last one of us, uh, we need to live with this this present reality that, that, that there's going to come a point when this life ends, whether that comes through, through our passing into eternity or through eternity breaking into our reality through the rapture, that there is going to come a day and, and that it's a day that, uh, that Jesus says will come without warning. It will come suddenly. And isn't that always how that intersection of life and eternity feels to us. Like it came too soon, that it came unexpectedly, that it came without warning. And so, as we've gone through section after section of Luke chapter 12, that's what Jesus is, is warning us of, is that every last one of us is going to face uh, the reality that that our life here on earth will end and that when it does, we will then stand before God and he will hold us accountable for how it is that we have lived our life. So we should probably know then. We should know that the way that we are supposed to live our life, the way that we're supposed to live here should be shaped not by this world, not by, uh, by this life, but it should be shaped by the reality of eternity. And we need to be ready for that a- at any time. That was chapter 12. Maybe, maybe you knew we were heading into chapter 13 and, and you were hoping for a break. I've got some bad news for you. You know, at the point that Luke chooses to to move from chapter 12, the the divider of the gospel of Luke, uh, he chooses this division point because there is a change, but it isn't really a change in Jesus' message. But it's a change in that Jesus now turns to those who have been listening to his teaching. And he makes very plain to them. He says very clearly to them that this is for them. Because don't we all have this tendency? Don't we all have that, uh, that, that tendency to, when we hear a message like this, to think, oh, man, I wish so-and-so were here today to hear this. This would be exactly what they need to hear. Or to think, oh, those people, those, those people out there, they so need to repent and to turn to Jesus and get saved. And yet Jesus would turn to us in the midst of this moment and he would remind us and he would speak very bluntly to us that we need his grace too, that we too need to choose repentance and we too need to understand that the, our only chance for salvation is not our performance, but rather his mercy. And that's really the message of Jesus here in chapter 13 this morning. We're going to be taking a look at, at verses 1 through 17. And so I invite you to grab your Bible, open it up to Luke 13. We're going to begin in verse 1. And when you, when you find Luke 13, will you do this? Will you stand with me? I'll read our passage. You can follow along. Here's what Luke records. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, and he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had had been disabled by his spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free from your disability. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath? and lead it to water satan has bound this woman a daughter of abraham for 18 years shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the sabbath day when he had said these things all his adversaries were humiliated but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing let's pray father I ask this morning that you would help us to understand and, Lord, to truly grab hold of what it is that your word speaks to us. God, I I fully recognize this passage is for me. This is for us. Help us to hear it and respond to it respond to you because of it, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know what it's been like for you uh, as week after week, um, we've looked at passage after passage that was warning us that that we are all going to face a day of accountability, uh, of judgment. I hope your response hasn't been what Uh, What I talked about that, you know, I wish so-and-so were here, or boy, those people out there, they really need to hear this. Hopefully, you didn't hear what Jesus was saying and assume it wasn't for you. Regardless, where Jesus goes this morning as we begin chapter 13 is to tell us that what he's been saying and what he is going to continue to say, it is for us. Look at verse one, it says, at that time, some people came and reported to him about uh, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now that's gross. Uh, so what's, what's going on with this? What is this talking about? Well, it's, it's talking about Pontius Pilate, the, the governor of uh, Judea during that time, ha- having killed some pilgrims who had come up to Jerusalem from Galilee, uh, to offer their sacrifices. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know exactly what is, what is being talked about here. Um, you know, history does not record for us these, what would have been, you know, historically speaking, not personally for them, but historically some relatively minor tragedies. They just, they're not things that are recorded by history but they are things that match the history that we do know. We do know that uh, that Pontius Pilate, that he was governor during that time period and that he was known for his brutality and for his unreasonable reactions to the people over which he governed. In fact, that's how he lost his job. He was recalled to Rome because of just a brutal act that, that he had his soldiers commit in response to something that was going on in Samaria. This kind of thing, it it went on. But why would they bring that up? Why would this even come up in this point in the conversation? Well, I think it's really, they're doing what you and I are so often prone to do, right? Remember when you were a kid and you got in trouble with your parents for something? What did you do? You you tried to bring out the smoke screen. You'd bring up something that one of your siblings had done recently, right? It's like, well, yeah, I did do that, but remember Johnny. Remember what he did last week, and that was so much worse, right? And so in the midst of Jesus talking about the fact that there's gonna be accountability, here's some people come to him, they're saying, You know, here's a great example of what you're talking about, Jesus. Not with us, but with those other people. We can think of great examples with those other people. Here's here's a bunch of evil people, and we saw judgment come down upon them. Look at verse 2. Jesus responded, not how they thought he would. He says, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful? More sinful than what? Than all the other Galileans? Who's he talking to? He's talking to a bunch of Galileans. Say, do what, well, do you think you're better than these guys were? Do you think that you are less deserving of judgment than these people that suffered this tragedy? No, he says. In fact, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And not just those who had been killed by Pilate, but also those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. We, we don't know what the Tower of Siloam was. There is a well There's a spring in Jerusalem, the the spring of Siloam, the well of Siloam, but the pool of Siloam there. And the city wall ran right by it in that time period. So this was probably a part of the city wall, a defensive tower that was attached to the city wall that had collapsed and killed some people there. So why bring that up? Well, much like people do today, People in that day, the Jews of that day, often believed that when something bad happened to someone, well, it's karma. By the way, karma, that's Hinduism. That's Buddhism. That, that, that is not biblical theology. That's Hinduism or Buddhism. And yet people then and people today, they, they tend to think that when bad things happen, it, it happens to those who deserve it. They had it coming. And yet Jesus completely rejects this line of thinking. And not only here, but elsewhere as well. Think of John chapter nine. That's a that passage where, where Jesus comes into contact with a man who was born blind. There in John nine, verses one through three, it says that Jesus saw a man blind from birth and his disciples ask him, you know, teacher, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus says, you're, you're thinking about this wrong. You're thinking about this wrong. It, it wasn't that he sinned. It wasn't that his parents sinned. It's so that God's glory might be displayed in his healing. And so, too, here in Luke 13, Jesus responds that, no, no. Do you think, you think you're any better than these people who, who were killed in Jerusalem? You're not. None of us should assume that we are any less guilty, that we are any more deserving of God's favor than these unfortunate souls who perish so awfully. You and I, all of us, are subject to God's judgment. And because of that, you and I, every last one of us, are in desperate need of his mercy. Really, if you think about it, the surprising thing isn't that some group of people would have suffered such a a, a terrible death. The surprising thing is that God hasn't wiped us all out by this point, right? I mean, you think about this, think about what what the scriptures tell us about the reality of our hearts, the reality of our innocence or guilt. Think of Romans chapter three. You can pick several different verses there, but let's look at verse nine. There it says, and none of us are innocent. Paul says, what then? Are are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Sin describes all of us. There are none of us who are innocent. We are all sinners who are in need of, of God's forgiveness and his mercy. And so to underscore where Jesus is going with this, he he tells a story, look at verse six. He told a parable, Uh, a man had a fig tree. It was planted in a vineyard. That's a good place to be planted. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. And he told the vineyard worker, listen, three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. So cut it down. There's no reason for it to waste this spot in the vineyard. Let me note two things before we begin to to look at what Jesus is saying through this, this parable. The first is this. As you're reading the scriptures, as you read the parables, and you begin to try to figure out, okay, what is Jesus saying here? As you interpret the parable, you've gotta be careful. You've gotta be careful, and you've gotta keep in mind this. Parables are meant to communicate big truths, not intricate details. Not every detail in a parable is supposed to represent something, okay? Rather, what you wanna do is when you read a parable, you wanna look for the big truth. And then you want to take that truth to heart. Secondly, like every other teaching of Jesus, and even more so for the parables that Jesus doesn't explain to us, we've got to consider their context if we're gonna understand them correctly. I mean, think about this, a parable is a story. You can, you, can, you can imbue meaning into a story in a thousand different directions. And So how are we to know, what is it that this parable is supposed to be teaching us? Well, we've gotta look at the context. We've gotta look at what is Jesus saying when he told this parable? What is it that he is trying to communicate to the people that he's talking with? And so here in, in our context, we must keep in mind that Jesus is addressing the fact that all people are sinners, uh, that all of us are in need of God's grace, and, and that even those who were gathered around listening to Him teach, they too, they too needed to repent and to put their faith in Him and to receive forgiveness, just like everyone else. This parable is probably. Um, misinterpreted uh, more, than, more than most, I would say. It is often used as a, a rebuke uh, towards saved people who aren't living out their faith in the way that someone thinks that they should. Uh, the, you know, it, it's, it's brought up to someone and, you know, like, listen, you need to get your stuff together. You need to get your stuff together or Jesus is gonna come and cut you down. He's going to rip you out of the vineyard if you don't get your act together and begin producing fruit. Yet, if we look at the context, that, that, that doesn't make sense. This is not a rebuke to saved people who are not fruitful. Jesus is talking to people who have not yet put their faith into him. And consider the consequence within the Within the parable, you know, this whole thing of being cut down, is that really how Jesus deals with us? I mean, is, is our salvation by works? Do you earn his forgiveness? No, but that would be the message if, if we applied it in that way. No, the tree here represents Jesus in this specific context, his Jewish listeners, his Jewish listeners who have not yet received him as the long-promised Messiah. They have not put their faith in him. You know, all through scripture, Israel is often represented by a fig tree or an olive tree or a vine. And here that's the case as well. His listeners, his Jewish followers who have not yet put their faith and their hope in him He's warning them. They've got this favored position. They're here in the day when the Messiah has come. Can you imagine? They're sitting at Jesus' feet while he teaches. Would that be wonderful? Would that be amazing? What a favored position they have. They're like a fig tree in a vineyard where it's watered. It's tended and the soil is enriched. And yet like the fig tree in the parable, these people who were following Jesus from place to place, they had not produced the fruit of faith. Despite all their advantages, they had not taken advantage of their situation. And they had not put their faith in Christ. You know, there's a little bit of a parallel there with us today, isn't there? I mean, you're here. You're present as God is worshipped. You're sitting politely as I attempt to explain God's word. You have such an advantage to hear the eternal truths of God presented to us. And yet here is reality. Attendance at church won't save anyone, right? It just being present, just being here, it, that isn't what makes salvation come. It isn't by living according to a, you know, a Christian morality or, or giving to a church or being a part of a community. No, it, it's coming to that place where we We put our faith, our hope, our life in Christ. We put ourselves in him. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You're in church right now, just present reality. This is where you are in case you just woken up and kind of you're confused and dazed. You're in church, yes, but are you in the faith? Are you in Christ? Do you belong to him? This is what Paul is urging the Corinthians to to do a self-check on, to do a self-evaluation. Do I belong to Christ? Am I running my own life? Or is Christ truly my Lord, my master? Because you see, when it comes to standing before God on that day that we will all face, Salvation will only be found for those who are in Christ. My church attendance, it it won't count for much. My service, that won't win the day. My, My morality, that certainly won't meet the muster. The only thing that will move me from condemned to saved is the righteousness of Christ. Am I hidden in Christ? Am I clothed with his righteousness? That's the only way. That's the only way to be saved. And and think about this. Think about the fact that you're here today and you're hearing that declared. It's not judgment day, Not, not quite yet. And yet you have been, you've been, Given the key, you've been given the truth. You've been given an understanding of what it will take on that day to put your faith in Christ. God's given you this truth and he has given you this day to choose. That's that's his heart. That is his heart for us. God is not like, you know, creating this, this intricate network that we'll never be able to figure out and that, he, you know, he's, he's hiding all the truths from us and, and he kind of smiles on that day when we arrive and we don't have a clue and all is lost. No, he is doing everything he can to reach us, to grab hold of our hearts, to, to open our eyes to the truth. He has placed us in a vineyard he has given us every advantage, but have we responded? Have we responded with the fruit of faith? Have we put our faith in Christ? He, he gives us every possible opportunity. Look at verse eight. But then he replied to him, sir, leave, leave it this year also. One more year, one more chance, one more opportunity. I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. You know, there are two truths here side by side. The God is not willing that any should perish. He he never gives up on us. He never gives up. He never quits drawing us to himself. And yet the day will come when opportunity is passed. The day will come when we stand before him. And in that day, it will be too late to choose. He gives us time, he gives us opportunity, and he draws us to himself. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. He reminds us of the kindness of God, that it is the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience. And, and, And he asks, do we not recognize that it's God's kindness, that is intended to lead us to repentance. Aren't you glad that that's how God works? He doesn't like rough us up until we finally turn to him. He he doesn't, you know, paint us into a corner, but it is rather his kindness, his mercy toward us that he uses to draw us to repentance. We'll talk about this more later, but shouldn't that shape how we work too? Shouldn't the fact that it is his kindness that draws us to repentance, shouldn't that, uh, that have an impact on us and how we operate with those around us? You know, it seems like sometimes we receive the grace of God, and then we think we have a better plan. It's like, I, God, that, that whole gracing worked well with me, but I think I have a better plan for those people around me. I think for those people around me, I will rail against their failings and I will criticize and critique all of their faults and I will only treat them lovingly if they perform to my standard because that seems to me to be a great plan. I mean, it's not the one I wanted you to use with me. But we can be guilty of, of not reflecting that same grace that we've received to those around us. well, Listen to what Luke describes for us, for us next. There, there in verse 10, as Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, by the way, it's the last time we'll see him teaching in a synagogue, I believe. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. And now not every time there's some illness or some malady Does scripture tie a spiritual or supernatural cause? Sometimes people are just sick. But when there is a supernatural cause, scripture labels it as such. And so here, this malady, this condition this woman is suffering under for over 18 years was caused by an evil spirit. What was the matter with her? She was bent over and could not straighten up. And I think the key word's there, at all, at all. So Jesus is there in the synagogue. He's teaching. This woman is there. She is so crippled, so badly bent over. Spurgeon describes her this way. For 18 years, she had not gazed upon the sun. For 18 years, no star of night had gladdened her eye. Her face was drawn downward towards the dust and all the light of her life was dim. As she walked about as if she were searching for a grave and I do not doubt that she often felt that it would have been gladness to have found one. Miserable, defeated, helpless. Maybe you can relate. Maybe there's some area of your life where you feel trapped, unable to get free. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, woman, you are free of your disability. He laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He responded by telling the crowd, notice he isn't brave enough to say this to Jesus, but he turns to the people and he says, listen, there are six days when work should be done. So come on those days to be healed. One wise cracking Bible commentator observed, it seems that the demon had left the woman's body and had somehow gone straight into the synagogue leader's heart, (laughs) right? So here is this woman who has been tortured for 18 years with a word the touch, with one encounter, she is set free by Jesus. (laughs) And this guy's upset because it didn't happen on the day that he thought it should have happened on. (laughs) Just to be clear, Jesus did not break the Old Testament law here. He merely ignored the religious leader's interpretation of the law. And in doing so, Jesus had stayed true to God's heart for us. Don't miss the contrast that is laid out here, because I think it fits so clearly with, with what Jesus has been speaking in the parable that he told Jesus has just pointed out to all of his hearers that, you know what? I don't care who you are. You all need mercy. And then he gives a story about a tree that had every advantage, every every opportunity to embrace mercy and yet did not. It did not take advantage of all that it had. And now he shows us a broken old woman, undoubtedly, undoubtedly very aware of her need. And he also shows us a religious leader who knew and who kept all the rules and who doesn't seem to think that he has any need for mercy at all, even though he had completely missed the heart of God. Notice how Jesus responds to this guy. Uh, This guy who, let's remember, was doing everything right. Verse 15. Hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a Jew, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied, freed from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he'd said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. but The whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things that he was doing. I see two very pointed messages that... That Jesus delivers here at the first part of chapter 13. The first that we need to understand is this what Jesus has been saying is for us, we all need mercy. There is none of us, no matter how much we've been in church, no matter how morally we've lived, no matter how well we've kept the rules, there is none of us who on that day will be able to stand before God and not be condemned unless we have received the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ unless we are clothed in his righteousness, unless we are hidden in Christ, however you want to picture it, uh, whichever picture from scripture you want to grab a hold of, uh, that Christ has, has clothed us with his righteousness, that we are hidden in Christ. That's my favorite way to think about it. That's my plan for getting into heaven. I'm going to be smuggled in. The only one who doesn't get border customs checks is Jesus. So I'm hiding in Jesus because no way would God let me in. He knows me. He knows my heart. He knows my failing. My only entry into heaven comes in being hidden in Christ. There is none of us, none of us who will stand before God on that day and explain to him how we've been good enough. Secondly, I think Jesus very pointedly communicates this, that you and I, who have been redeemed by grace and by mercy we need to become people who are shaped by grace and mercy. We need to become people who reflect that same grace and mercy uh, to others around us who, who, who shower grace and mercy upon people who, let's, let's be honest, who frankly don't deserve it. If you wait to shower grace and mercy upon the deserving, you'll never give it to anyone because none of us deserve it. You and I who, though we did not deserve it, received grace and mercy, we need to freely, freely grant it to others. That should shape how we think about what kind of life it is that we are supposed to live in this world. It, it makes me think of the Old Testament prophet Micah, right? Remember what Micah said, Micah 6.8? I like the way the, the New King James puts it. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, Walk humbly with your God. Oh, that, that's familiar, isn't it? Don't those words resound in your in your head and in your heart? And, and yet, where well, we've really got the need to let them resound is in the living of our lives. It's great to be able to go, oh, I remember that. Yeah, oh, I love the way that's phrased. It, it's great to be able to appreciate the beauty of the phrase. It's great to be able to sing the song, Right? but we've got to live this out. We've got to put this into practice. And by definition, if we're granting mercy, it means they didn't deserve it. If we're gonna act justly, it means that there is opportunity for us to not act justly. And for to walk humbly, it means that we're gonna put our eyes off of ourselves and put them upon our savior. that really needs to begin to describe how it is that we deal with each other, how husbands treat wives, how wives treat husbands. Think about this. Are fairness, mercy, and humility what you bring to your relationships? Or are you more likely to insist on what you want, to grow impatient when you don't get it, And to think quite honestly that you deserve better than this. You and I, we are all in desperate need of God's mercy. And so we should agree and we should live in reflection upon what James wrote. There in the book of James, he writes, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Being thankful for the grace that we've received, we should pray that our living would be shaped by being those who grant grace wherever we go. You know, there's no greater reminder for us Of the grace and forgiveness that we've received, nor of how it is that God then empowers us to grant that same same grace to others. There's no better reminder of that than the communion table. That's where we're going to end our time today. I'm going to invite the worship team. Come on up, guys. And we are going to return to worshiping the Lord, and you are going to have opportunity to to come to the table and to to take the elements on, on your own, just between you and the Lord. And there each one of the pairs of cups has, in the top cup, some juice, and in the bottom cup, a little nugget of bread. And it's a reminder to us of what Jesus instituted with his disciples right as he was betrayed and and taken to go to the cross. That he told them, this is my body. It's given for you. And this is my blood. It is poured out for you. And and they were symbols to remind them of the reality that he was giving himself as a sacrifice for their sin, that he was redeeming them, purchasing them, saving them, paying the penalty for them through what he was doing. It's how we receive his mercy. But do you ever thought about the fact that it's kind of odd that Jesus chose as a way for us to remember his death in our place, something that we would eat, something that we would ingest, something that would would come from outside of us, would enter into us and then physically, biologically become a part of us. I think that's interesting because as we receive his grace, as we feast upon it, we want it to become a part of us, right? so that we can then pour it out to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, for this opportunity to meet with you. And I pray for each one here this morning who belongs to you. Lord, as they partake of the bread, and of the juice, that they would be reminded of your death in their place, undeserved. What grace, what mercy. And Lord, as we take that in, even more than the the bread and juice become a part of us, may your grace and mercy become a part of us. May they flow out from us. That we might represent you to this world that needs your grace and mercy. That through us, your kindness might draw others to repentance. Work that in us today. We pray it in Jesus' name.